Chapter Twenty of An American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bob Sage. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter Twenty. Sherwood was a very old place. It had been built a hundred years at least before the Revolution, in the days when the states had English governors, and when its founder had been governor of Rhode Island, his last descendant in the direct line was Sybil Brandon's great-uncle. The old country seat was remarkable chiefly for the extent of its gardens attached to the house, and for the singularly advanced state of dilapidation in which everything was allowed to remain. Beyond the gardens the woods stretched down to the sea, unpruned and thick with a heavy undergrowth. From the road the gardens were hidden by thick hedges and by the forbidding gray front of the building. It was not an attractive place to look at, and once within the precincts there was a heavy sense of loneliness and utter desolation that seemed to fit it for the very home of melancholy. The damp sea air had drawn green streaks of mold downward from each several jointing of the stones. The long, closed shutters of some of the windows were more than half hidden by creepers, bushy and straggling by turns, and the eaves were all green with moss and mold. From the deep-arched porch at the back a weed-grown gravel walk led away through untrimmed hedges of box and myrtle to an ancient summer-house on the edge of a steep slope of grass. To right and left of this path the rose-trees and box that had once marked the gayest of flower-gardens now grew in such exuberance of wild profusion that it would have needed strong arms and a sharp axe to cut a way through. Far away on a wooded knoll above the sea was the old graveyard where generations of Sherwoods lay dead in their quiet rest, side by side. But for a space in every year the desolation was touched with the breath of life, and the sweet June air blew away the mold and the smell of death, and the wild flowers and roses sprang up joyfully in the wilderness to greet the songbirds and the butterflies of summer. And in this copious year a double spring had come to Sherwood, for Sybil Brandon had arrived one day, and her soft eyes and golden hair had banished all sadness and shadow from the old place. Even the thin old man who lived there among the ghosts and shadows of the dead and dying past smoothed the wrinkles from his forehead, forgetting to long selfishly for his own death when Sybil came and with touching thoughtfulness he strove to amuse her and to be younger for her sake. He found old garments of a gayer time, full thirty years hidden away in the great wardrobes upstairs, and he put them on and wore them, though they hung loosely about his shaken and withered frame, lest he should be too sad a thing for such young eyes to look upon. Then Ronald came one day, and the old man took kindly to him, and bade him come often, 
in the innocence of his old age its station given him, and came as often as he pleased, which, before long, meant every day. When he came in the morning, he generally stayed until the evening, and when he came in the afternoon, he always stayed as long as Sybil would let him, and rode home late through the misty June moonlight, pondering on the happiness the world had suddenly brought forth for him, who had supposed, but a few months ago, that all happiness was at an end. Six months had gone by since Ronald had first seen Sybil, and he had changed in that time from a boy to a man. Looking back through the past years, he knew that he was glad Joe had not married him, for the new purpose of his new life was to love and marry Sybil Brandon. There was no doubt in his mind as to what he would do. The strong nature in him was at last roused, and he was capable of anything, in reason or without it, to get what he wanted. Someone has said that an Englishman's idea of happiness is to find something he can kill and to hunt it. That is a metaphor as well as a fact. It may take an Englishman half a lifetime to find out what he wants, but when he is once decided, he is very likely to get it or to die in the attempt. The American is fond of trying everything until he reaches the age at which Americans normally become dyspeptic, and during his comparatively brief career he succeeds in experiencing a surprising variety of sensations. Both Americans and English are tenacious in their different ways, and it is certain that between them they have gotten more things that they have wanted than any other existing nation. What most surprised Ronald was that, having made up his mind to marry Sybil, he should not have the opportunity, or perhaps the courage, to tell her so. He remembered how easily he had always been able to speak to Joe about matrimony, and he wondered why it should be so hard to approach the subject with one whom he loved infinitely more dearly than he had ever loved his cousin. But love brings tact and the knowledge of fitness, besides having the effect of partially hiding the past and exaggerating the future into an eternity of rose-colored happiness. Wherefore Ronald supposed that everything would come right in time, and that the time for everything to come right could not possibly be far off. On the day after he had seen Joe in Boston, he rode over to Sherwood in the morning, as usual, upon one of Vancouver's horses. He was lighter at heart than ever, for he had somewhat dreaded the revelation of his intentions to Joe. But she had so led him on and helped him that it had all seemed very easy. He was not long in reaching his destination, and having put his horse in the hands of the single man, who did duty as gardener, groom, and dairyman for old Mr. Sherwood, he entered the garden, where he hoped to meet Sybil alone. He was not disappointed, for as he walked down the path through the wilderness of shrubbery, he caught sight of her near the summer house, stooping down in the act of plucking certain flowers that grew there. She, too, was dressed all in white, as he had seen his cousin on the previous day, but the difference struck him forcibly as he came up 
and took her outstretched hand. They had changed places and character, one could almost have thought. Joe had looked so tired and weary, so wilted, as they say in Boston, that it had shocked Ronald to see her. Sybil, who had formerly been so pale and cold, now was the very incarnation of life. Delicate and exquisitely fine in every movement and expression, but most thoroughly alive. The fresh, soft color seemed to float beneath the transparent skin, and her deep eyes were full of light and laughter and sunshine. Ronald's heart leaped in his breast for love and pride as she greeted him, and his brow turned hot, and his hands cold in the confusion of his happiness. "'You have been away again?' she asked presently, looking down at the wild white lilies which she had been gathering. "'Yes, I was in Boston yesterday,' answered Ronald, who had immediately begun to help in plucking the flowers. "'I went to see Joe.' She looks dreadfully knocked up with the heat. Poor child. And so they talked about Joe and Boston for a little while, and Sybil sat upon the steps of the summer house on the side where there was shade from the hot morning sun, while Ronald brought her handfuls of the white lilies. At last there were enough, and he came and stood before her. She was so radiantly lovely as she sat in the warm shade with the still slanting sunlight just falling over her white dress. He thought her so superhumanly beautiful that he stood watching her without thinking of speaking or caring that she should speak to him. She looked up and smiled, a quick, bright smile, for she was woman enough to know his thoughts. But she busied herself with the lilies and looked down again. "'Let me help you,' said Ronald suddenly, kneeling down before her on the path. "'I don't think you can very much,' said Sybil demurely. "'You are not very clever about flowers, you know. "'Oh, take care! You will crush it. Give it back to me.' Ronald had taken one of the lilies and was smelling it, but it looked to Sybil very much as though he were pressing it to his lips. He would not give it back but held it away at arm's length as he knelt. Sybil made as though she were annoyed. Of course, said she, I cannot take it if you will not give it to me. Ronald gently laid the flower in her lap with the others. She pretended to take no notice of what he did, but went on composing her nosegay. Miss Brandon, began Ronald and stopped. Well, said Sybil, without looking up, "'May I tell you something?' he asked. "'That depends,' said Sybil. "'Is it anything very interesting?' "'Yes,' said Ronald. "'There seemed to be something the matter with his throat all at once, "'as though he were going to choke. "'Sybil looked up and saw that he was very pale. "'She had never seen him otherwise than ruddy before, and she was startled. "'She dropped the lilies on her knees and looked at him anxiously.' Ronald suddenly laid his hands over hers and held them. Still she faced him. I am very unworthy of you. I know I am. But I love you very, very much. He spoke distinctly now and slowly. He was as white as marble and his fingers were cold and trembled as they held hers. For an instant, after he had spoken, 
Sybil did not move. Then she quietly drew back her hands and hid her face in a sudden convulsive movement. She too trembled, and her heart beat as though it would break, but she said nothing. Ronald sprang from the ground and kneeled again upon the step beside her. Very gently his arm stole about her and drew her to him. She took one hand from her face and tried to disentangle his hold, but he held her strongly and whispered in her ear, Sybil, I love you. Do you love me? Sybil made a struggle to rise, but it was not a very brave struggle, and in another moment she had fallen into his arms and was sobbing out her whole love passionately. Oh, Ronald, you mu must not, but Ronald did. Half an hour later they were still sitting side by side on the steps, but the storm of uncertainty was past, and they had plighted their faith for better or worse, for this world and the next. Ronald had foreseen the event, and had hoped for it, as he never had hoped for anything in his life. Sybil had perhaps guessed it. At all events, now that the supreme moment was over, they both felt it was the natural climax to all that had happened during the spring. I think, said Sybil quietly, that we ought to tell my uncle at once. He is the only relation I have in the world. Oh, yes, of course, said Ronald, holding her hand. That is, you know, I think we might tell him after lunch, because I suppose it would not be the right thing for me to stay all day after he knows, would it? Why not? asked Sybil. He must know it soon, and you will come to-morrow. To-morrow, and the next day, and the day after that, and always, said Ronald lovingly. But he will not like it, I suppose. Why not? asked Sybil again. Because I am poor, said Ronald quietly. You know I am not rich at all, Sybil dearest. We shall have to be very economical and live on the place in Scotland, but it is a very pretty place, he added reassuringly. Sybil flushed a little. He did not know then that she had a fortune of her own. It was a new pleasure. She did not say anything for a moment. "'Do you mind very much, dearest?' asked Ronald doubtfully. "'Do you think it would bore you dreadfully to live in the country?' Sybil hesitated before she answered. She hardly knew whether to tell him or not, but at last she decided it would be better. "'No, Ronald,' said she, smiling a little. "'I like the country, but you know. We can live anywhere we please. I am rich, Ronald. You did not know it? Ronald started slightly. It was indeed an unexpected revelation. Really? he cried. Oh, I'm so glad for you. You will not miss anything, then. I was so afraid. That evening Ronald telegraphed to Joe the news of his engagement, and the next day he wrote her a long letter which was more remarkable for the redundant passion expressed than for the literary merit of the expression. It seemed far easier to write it, since he had seen her and talked with her about Sybil. 
not because he felt in the least ashamed of having fallen in love within six months of the dissolution of his former engagement with Joe, but because it seemed a terribly difficult thing to speak to anyone about Sybil. Ronald was very far from being poetical, or in any way given to lofty and medieval reflections of the chivalric sort, but he was a very honest fellow, loving for the first time, and he understood that his love was something more to be guarded and respected than anything that had yet come into his life, wherefore it seemed almost ungentlemanly to speak about it. When Joe received the intelligence, her satisfaction knew no bounds, for although she had guessed that the climax of the affair was not far off, she had not expected it so very soon. Had she searched through the whole of her acquaintance at home and in America, she could have found no one whom she considered more fit to be Ronald's wife, and that alone was enough to make her very happy but the sensation of freedom from all further responsibility to Ronald, and the consciousness that every possible good result had followed upon her action, added so much to her pleasure in the matter, that for a time she utterly forgot herself and her own troubles. She instantly wrote a long and sympathetic letter to Ronald, and another to Sybil. Sybil replied at once, begging Joe to come and spend a month at Sherwood, or as much time as she was able to give. "'I expect you had best go,' remarked Miss Schenectady. "'It is getting pretty hot here, and you look quite sick.' "'Oh, no, I am very well,' said Joe. "'But I think I will go for a week or ten days. "'Well, if you find you are going to have a good time, "'you can always stay anyway,' replied the old lady. "'I think if I were you, I would take some books and a Bible.' and a pair of old boots. Miss Schenectady did not smile, but Joe laughed outright. A Bible and a pair of old boots, she cried. Yes, I would, said her aunt. Old Tom Sherwood cannot have seen a Bible for fifty years, I expect, and it might sort of freshen him up. The old lady's eye twinkled slightly, and the corners of her mouth twitched a little. As for the old boots, if you conclude to go, you will want them, for you will be right out in the country there. Joe laughed again, but she took her aunt's advice, and on the following day she reached Newport, and was met by Sybil and Ronald, who conveyed her to Sherwood in a thing which Joe learned was called a carry-all. Late in the afternoon, when Ronald was gone, the two girls sat in an angle of the old walls, looking over the sea to eastward. The glow of the setting sun behind them touched them softly, and threw a rosy color upon Joe's pale face, and gilded Sybil's bright hair, hovering about her brows in a halo of radiant glory. Joe looked at her, and wondered at the change love had wrought in so short a time. Sybil had once seemed so cold and white that only a nun's veil could be a fit thing to bind upon her saintly head. But now the orange blossoms would look better there, Joe thought, twined in a bride's wreath of white and green, of purity and hope. My snow angel, she exclaimed, the sun has melted you at last. 
tell me the story of the snow angel, said Sybil, smiling. You once said that you would. I will tell you, said Joe, as well as I can remember it. Mamma used to tell it to me years and years ago, when I was quite a small thing. It is a pretty story. Listen. Once on a time, far away in the north, there lived an angel. She was very, very beautiful, and all of the purest snow, quite white, her face and her hands, and her dress, and her wings. She lived alone, ever so far away, all through the long winter, in a valley of beautiful snow, where the sun never shone even in the summer. She was the most lovely angel that ever was, but she was so cold that she could not fly at all. And so she waited in the valley, always looking southward, and wishing with all her heart that the sun would rise above the hill. Sometimes people passed far down below in sledges, and she almost would have asked some one of them to take her out of the valley. But once, when she came near the track, a man came by and saw her, and he was so dreadfully frightened that he almost fell out of the sled. Sometimes, too, the little angels, who were young and curious, would fly down into the cold valley and look at her and speak to her. Pretty angel, they would say, why do you stay all alone in this dreary place? They forgot me here, she used to answer, and now I cannot fly until the sun is over the hill. But I am very happy. It will come soon. It was too cold for the little angels, and so they soon flew away and left her, and they began to call her the snow angel among themselves, and some of them said that she was not real, but the other ones said she must be because she was so beautiful. She was not unhappy, because angels never can be, you know. Only it seemed a long time to wait for the sun to come. But at last the sun heard of her, and the little angels who had seen her told him it was a shame that he should not rise high enough to warm her and help her to fly. So as he is big and good-natured and strong, he said he would try and would do his best and on a midsummer's day he determined to make a great effort. He shook himself, and pushed and struggled very hard, and got hotter than he had ever been in his whole life with his exertions. But at last, with a great brave leap, he found himself so high that he could see right down into the valley, and he saw the snow angel standing there, and she was so beautiful that he almost cried with joy. And then, as he looked, he saw a very wonderful sight. The snow angel, all white and glistening, looked up into the sun's face and stretched her arms towards him and trembled all over. And as she felt that he was come at last and had begun to warm her, she thrust out her delicate long wings, and they gleamed and shone and struck the cold clear air. Then, the least possible tinge of exquisite color came into her face, and she opened her lips and sang for joy, and presently, as she was singing, she rose straight upward with a rushing sound, like a lark in the sunlight, the whitest and purest and most beautiful angel that ever flew in the sky. And her voice was so grand and clear and ringing that all the other angels stopped in their songs to listen 
and then sang with her in joy because the snow angel was free at last. That is the story Mama used to tell me, long ago. And when I first saw you, I thought of it because you were so cold and beautiful that you seemed all made of snow. But now the sun is over the hill, Sybil, dear, is it not? Dear Joe, said Sybil, winding her arm round her friend's neck and laying her face close to her, you are so nice. The sun sank suddenly behind them, and the eastern water caught the purple glow. It was dark when the two girls walked slowly back to the old house. Joe stayed many days with Sybil at Sherwood, and the days ran into weeks and the weeks to months as the summer sped by. Ronald came and went daily, spending long hours with Sybil in the garden and growing more manly and quiet in his happiness, while Sybil grew ever fairer in the gradual perfecting of her beauty. It was comforting to Joe to see them together, knowing what honest hearts they were. She occupied herself as she could with books and a few letters, but she would often sit for hours in a deep chair under the overhanging porch where the untrammeled honeysuckle waved in the summer breeze like a living curtain, and the birds would come and swing themselves upon its tendrils. But Joe's cheek was always pale and her heart weary with longing, and with fighting against the poor, imprisoned love that no one must ever guess. End of chapter 20